We're continuing in the book of Acts, and as we've been going through the book, um, it's, it's worth taking a step back and reminding ourselves of where we've been before we go to where we're going next. If you, if you remember, um, at the very beginning outset, we talked about this, this crux verse, this theme verse of one act of Acts, and does anybody remember what that was? It was in Acts what? We've got to do our jobs over again. Either that or we're Presbyterians and we're just not used to saying things out loud. Acts 1... Eight, thank you. Acts 1-8 is the hinge verse of everything in the book of Acts. It is the time when, when the Lord tells his people that they will be a church and that they will go and be his witnesses in three different places. In Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Right? And we talked at the very beginning about how in the book of Acts then we see this unfolding. At the very first time the Spirit comes, they are in the church, they're in Jerusalem, they're gathered together in somewhat of a hidden fashion. The Spirit comes and empowers them in a mighty way, and thousands of people get added to their numbers. But they're still just in Jerusalem. The next step is a hard step for the church to take. And ultimately, what we see is it takes the church getting a kick in the teeth to really start to move from being this huddled Jerusalem church to being out in the midst. And so we talked about, at one point, the, the death of Stephen, right, as they start the deacons, and Stephen is one of the first, the first martyr to be killed for the Christian faith. And that starts this rampant persecution of Christians all through that region. And so because of it, there's a scattering that takes place. The people of the Lord are forced to migrate. As we see later, this was a thing orchestrated by the Lord. Not that the Lord directly said, I'm going to kill Stephen. But sometimes the Lord allows the evil of this world to occur. And he will use it to further his kingdom. And so if we go through, this is where we are in the book of Acts. Next slide, please. Nice little diagram. Acts splits up into three, no pun intended, acts of the narrative. <laughs> and the first one is in Jerusalem, and we are now at the very tail end of the Judea and Samaria section of the book of Acts. So we're, we're nearing the end of B, we're getting to C, and there is an end in sight. If you're tired of the book, maybe you know, we'll move on here fairly soon in just a few weeks. But one of the things you'll note in all of the, the times that Luke records stories in 8 through 12 is there's this recurring thing that the Christians who were scattered because of Stephen find themselves here. And so we hear the stories of, of Philip and of Peter and their ministries all started because they were sent out from this great persecution. The Lord used incredible evil to move his church forward. It's how he sometimes works. I know we don't love that. The idea of some cataclysmic event happening that propels the church forward. But in the case of Acts, that's exactly what happens. And today's passage is no different. Next slide, please. We see, as we get to chapter 11, 12, and 13, which is kind of where we're going to float around a little bit today, that we're in the same exact boat, except for now we're in the city of Antioch. Antioch was a unique place in the life of the church. It was this, this kind of massive city hub of Rome. We had, we had um, Christians and Jews there. You know, if you think of Jerusalem, there was this mix 
uh, this, this, sorry, if you think of Jerusalem, there was just this, this Jewish community there. It was the stringent community. It's where the religious leaders kind of found themselves. There was a lot more diversity in the city of Antioch. Next slide. This goes way better if I just have one of these. Right? <laughs> it was after Rome and Alexandria, it was the largest city in the Roman Empire. And so today we think of Antioch, which is in, you know, in, in Syria, as this, Turkey, as this place that doesn't really have a whole lot of significance. But you have to understand that this was, it was the third largest kind of hub in the entirety of Rome. That's where some Christians who were scattered found themselves. And as they found themselves there, they started to talk to other Christians in the passage that we'll get to today. Many of them Jews, but some of them started talking to some other folks. If you remember last week when Paul was preaching, we looked at the, the story of Peter with Cornelius. And one of the things we see coming out of that is the Lord saying, what I have said is clean, you can't call unclean. Right? Up till now, this faith, this Christian faith, had been all about the Jews. And God is starting to say, no, no, no. It's not just about them. It's about all. I'm including everybody in this kingdom. You don't just go to the Jewish people. You go everywhere. And so Peter's vision and then his interaction with Cornelius sets the tone. But we still don't really have it happening. I think of this, and the, and the metaphor or the comparison is really loose, so don't, don't hold me here. I think of this as the end of slavery in, our, in, in the United States. The proclamation happened. There was this, this word that said it's over, but it took a long, long time to actually start to implement. Right? So just because Peter has this vision and he talks to Cornelius doesn't mean that all of a sudden the whole church goes, yay, Gentiles, come on in, you're welcome. We're done making this our own little social club. It takes time. And so as we read today, we'll see that the church in Antioch starts because of a few brave people who are willing to take this idea of Gentile inclusion and run with it. So let's read together. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, a.k.a. the Greeks, also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with a steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. And so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Notice the opening. Because of the persecution of Stephen, people were scattered to Antioch. A whole lot of folks that were Christians were sent there, and some of them were aware of, of some of the changes in this idea of Gentile inclusion. Most of the people that went didn't deal with outsiders. They only talked to the Jewish people. I don't know if you've ever been part of a church, or maybe even in this church, you felt like this kind of holy huddle. You know, we're just going to hang out with everybody that's like us. 
and we're just not going to do anything else, and we're not going to reach out, and you know, those people don't really fit into the narrative of what we're... Kind of that's what we see happening. People are talking, but only to their Jewish counterparts. But there's some, it tells us, that also talk to the Greeks. Now, here's what's interesting. Um, we have no account of who these people are. It doesn't tell us. It tells us who, where they're from, that there's the, some of these towns that those people that talked to the Greeks came from, but we don't have names. It's not like here's the six people that we can hail as heroes of the faith that really started to talk to all the other people in Antioch and helped start the church there. There's no names given. It's going to come in handy a little later. And so the church starts to explode. That's all we're told. A few handful of people, we don't know their names, they're insignificant to the history of, of the church in some way. No one thought to record them. They go and they say, maybe we shouldn't just stay amongst the Jewish people, but we should go talk to the Greeks as well. And they step out and they start to share the gospel with others. With people whose culture is radically different from their own with people who don't have any of the ceremonial stuff down, with people who don't understand the Jewish law. And what happens? The church absolutely blows up. Some people say, and it's a, it's a loose kind of being loose with language, but some people say that Antioch was perhaps the first megachurch um, in some ways. The church in Antioch absolutely explodes as a result of these handful of folks talking to the Greeks. And people from all over the place culturally start to become part of this way to the point where they have to send to the home base for help. And Barnabas comes up. Notice this. Barnabas is this guy. He's making a name for himself in the church world. He's, he's well-known and respected. You know, we talk about his character. He's an encourager. He's a godly man, full of the Holy Spirit. But the church blows up before he gets there. It's not like they hire the guru to come to Antioch to blow up the church. The church has grown so much that it needs Barnabas to come and help and steer and lead and move. It tells us something about how leadership in the church ought to work. We'll get to that a little bit later. So Barnabas comes, and he's spending time with the people. And after some time, the church continues to grow. So it blew up before Barnabas. It keeps blowing up more and more after Barnabas comes. And we get to the point where Barnabas steps out and goes and gets Paul. He goes to Tarsus, and he gets Paul, and he brings him back. And it says then that the people spent a whole year having Barnabas and Paul with them, teaching them, training them, moving with them, living life with them to get this church to be established and underground. It doesn't tell us exactly what they do, but we can assume from some later texts that they spent a heck of a lot of time raising up new leaders within that actual church so that when they eventually do move on, and we'll get to that too, that there's a solid base of people. That tells us something else about how church leadership is supposed to work and how life in the church is supposed to work. And so we have these two people here, and the church absolutely, fully blows up. Next slide. Then we have this kind of little weird aside. In 26, it tells us then that, by the way, this is the first time ever that the church was called Christians. 
We just say that word like it's who we've been forever and ever. <clears throat> but they weren't called that. They were followers of Christ. Um, some people talk about this, this the way, right? all these different kind of languages and words and things that people use to call themselves. They're just, they just followers of Christ. And so people started calling them Christians. Why, why that name? Where did it come from? <clears throat> the church did not give itself the name Christians. They didn't start using that name for themselves until well into the second century. What happened was that complete outsiders, people that were not churched in any way, started calling them Christians because they encountered them and realized all these people talk about is Jesus Christ. Every time we hear one of them, all they're talking about is Jesus this, Jesus that. And so they started calling them Christians, people of Christ. It's the same way that we're Americans. We're from America. Just people were called that because they were known as a group that just consistently, constantly was talking about Jesus. It's like that friend you have that's vegan. It's all they ever talk about. <laughs> Except for it's actually significant. <laughs> if you're vegan, I'm not, I don't mean, there's no offense, please. I, 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 if, I, if I could give up steak, I would. But I can't. Right, like we, that's just that they're known for. Every time you get together for lunch with one of these folks, they're talking about Jesus and the gospel and the resurrection and the, what happens in light of it and that you need to come and understand him too. And they're inviting people and that's what they're all about as a church because they always are talking about the gospel. Next slide. Then we get to this last little tidbit. We have this explosive, diverse church. And then we have this passage that comes after it about a famine. Let's read together. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. That dates, by the way, around 45 AD. Uh, just that little phrase in there. The Bible, by the way, is full of history. It tells us these things so that we can know that it's trustworthy and true. So it throws in actual history. So in outside historical documents, we can look at when Claudius reigned in this area, and we can kind of get the dates and everything. So this is around 45 AD. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. How big did the church in Antioch get? How successful was it? The church in Antioch when a prediction of famine hits, starts sending help to the church in Jerusalem, the regions of Judea. The church plant is sending help to the planter in some way, shape, or form. I remember in college um, encountering, it was, it was a conf youth conference, and I encountered this, this speaker who was an African missionary from Kenya, and he started talking about the mission work that he was doing. And really early on, he said this phrase that made my ears perk up. I was really tired. I was half listening. And he said that he was a Kenyan missionary to the United States. I went, what? Doesn't Africa need us to send missionaries because there's no Christianity there? And we need to tell them how we live the church life and how we do this and how we do that. And we need to teach them theology. And no, he, he was a missionary. The church in Kenya sends missionaries to us. There's something humbling. I think one of the radical misunderstandings that we have when we think of mission is when we go and we think that we are the savior of all of the rest of this poor third world that's out there somewhere. And we are these, these holders of the keys of the gospel. And we go out 
And we share it graciously because we have this thing that they don't have. Oh, and we have money, which they also don't have. The reality is that the center for Christianity in the church today is kind of shifting. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later and as we get into the missionary journeys that, that Paul and Barnabas and some take. But that's something worth noting. The church in Antioch has gotten so big that they are now providing aid. They are doing what faithfully the Lord has called them to do and helping when you would think in every way it would be the other way around. How humbling that is for the church back home to accept and to think about. We see this genuine growth. Next slide. When we get to Acts 13... We see just how big the church in Antioch becomes. Because this is the end of this Judea timeline that we've been looking at. The next chapter, as we get into 13, we start to move to the missionary journeys. But one of the things to note is by the time we get to chapter 13, where are the missions starting from? They're not coming out of Jerusalem. They're launching from Antioch. It says this in 13, 1 through 3. Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas... Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menin, I'm hoping I pronounced that last one right, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off on their way. We see, number one, that Antioch is the hub from which sending occurs. How do we move from Jerusalem to Judea? Stephen dies. People are scattered. How do we move from Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth? The Spirit comes and calls this new church to be on mission. And so they set apart Saul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, and they send them out. And in that passage, what we read is the names of other people. There are leaders now in this church that have been raised up and trained to be able to carry forth the leadership of that place. The church in Antioch blows up because a few ordinary people faithfully did what the Lord called them to do. Because people were willing to listen and to come and go as the Lord called them to. And So what are some of the things that we take away as we observe this this explosive growth of this new multicultural hub of a church? Number one, this. Ordinary Christians. Not just the trained pastors up front. Ordinary Christians are the ones who spread the gospel and grow the church. If you think that the way it works in the world today is that you will somehow get unchurched people to walk in this building and Paul or myself or the worship team or whatever will persuade them to come to Christ, you got to rethink the paradigm. You as a member sitting in the seat today worshiping God are one of the most effective agents for change. You are the way that the Lord has chosen to spread and grow his kingdom. You are responsible for going and making disciples of all nations, teaching them, baptizing them. You, not people up front, you. That's our call. That is what the Lord tells us we are to be about. We are to go and be with people and get into the culture and take faithfully the word that he's given us and proclaim it so that people might come to know him. And when they come to know him, then you bring them here and you worship him together. 
and you help them to grow and to be taught and trained and raised in the way of the Lord. You want to know how the church in Antioch blew up? They just did what the Lord called them to do. The people were faithful. Blew up before they really had a whole lot of leadership. Imagine a church growing without a real lead pastor for quite some time to the point where they go, we grew, we need one. (laughs) Not we need one so that we can grow. Tells us a whole lot about the dynamic of leadership today. Second this, this text highlights the importance of encouragement. It tells us that when Barnabas was called and he comes to Antioch, one of the primary things that he does, really one of the few things that scripture actually mentions, is that he encourages the people in what they were already doing. We need encouragers. And I can tell you from the, from the little time that I've gotten to spend in this church so far, there are people of you in this room that have this gift of encouragement that maybe you don't even know it. I've gotten cards in the mail from, from folks that I guarantee in your head you're just sending a nice card. But, but there's an encouraging nature that comes behind it. I'm a skeptic when it comes to reviews on the internet for stuff. I love to look at reviews. But one of the challenges with reviews is that most of them are skewed negative. Have you ever looked at something that has a one-star review so you don't buy the thing? Most likely, we are to go online and leave a review for something when we're dissatisfied. Most of us aren't likely to go online and leave a review for something if we're happy with the product. We just don't. We just move on with our lives. It's when we're angry that we complain. And so our nature, our sinful nature, tells us that we speak when we have something negative to say and we're quiet when we don't. And Barnabas is the opposite, and we ought to be too. We need to, in our church, cultivate a culture of encouragement. It is a gift. When you see people in the midst of your church and your community moving in ways that the Lord is calling them, when you see growth, when you look at somebody and go, man, they've really matured in some ways this year, or man, they did this, tell them. We need to be a community of Christian encouragement that as you grow more and more in the Lord, that people come alongside of you and say, well done, keep going. Attaboy. (laughs) You're on the right track. That's what Barnabas does with the church. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're faithful. They're growing. And he comes and says, great, keep going. Don't be discouraged. I'm sure there were days when they weren't growing as much and they went, you know, we only added 2% to our numbers this week. Don't worry about it. Just keep going. And so they didn't lose heart. The church in Antioch, at the time that they were at, needed an encourager. And that's exactly what they got. And that's what we have to be about as well. Next slide. Third, Barnabas takes a huge risk, and it teaches us something about sacrificial leadership. Barnabas is leading the church in Antioch. He's the guy. Everybody is looking to him. He has the influence, he has the position, he has the prominence, and he goes and he seeks Paul to come in. Now, by all accounts, Paul was known to be probably more educated, better spoken. There was a lot of things about Paul that would probably make it so he would become the more prominent one if Barnabas invites him in, but he goes anyway. Because Barnabas is less worried about making much of himself and more worried about making much of the gospel. He doesn't care if he's not the one in the room who knows every answer. 
And he recognizes that what the church in Antioch needs is, is more help and that Saul would be the one that he could call on to do that helping work. And so he brings him in. And as we see, the focus in, book, in the book of Acts starts to shift towards Paul. As we get into the missionary journeys, it becomes more and more about Paul. He is indeed the one that gains the prominence. Paul is the guy in the New Testament. Much of it is authored by Paul. Right? But Barnabas is a sacrificial leader who knows when to bring in others. He does not care about his own reputation. He only cares about the reputation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and of his church. That is how we need to lead. And that is the things we should look for in leaders. It's not about them. The best leaders train up people that come next, and we see that happening in the church. As we move next week into the missionary journeys, Barnabas and Paul leave the church in Antioch, and it continues to thrive because they've raised up new people because it's not about Barnabas and Paul. A church is never about its leader. It's always about the leader. And finally, we learn about what good missions look like. We'll get into this way more, but I'll just touch on it today. We need to be a people that understand that the missional work of the church on a global scale is about taking the gospel to very corners and the ends of the earth. And we will partner with anyone we can to make that happen. And it doesn't matter if we're the leader of it all or if we're a follower. I can tell you right now, the epicenter of Christianity is rapidly shifting away from the Western world. We will live in a time over the next few decades where the Christian hub is going to be in places like Africa, China, South America. And we're going to start to learn a whole lot about how we do church from those places. And you're going to start to see more and more stories, like I told earlier, where missionaries are sent here to train us, and in some ways maybe to reform us. And our answer to that ought to be nothing but, Lord, I hope so. <laughs> we need it. It's not about who is the head of things. That's why God tells us those, you have to make less of yourself in order to get more. Right? You have to be the least in order to be the greatest. The church of Antioch knew that. Next slide. And so my challenge to you is this. Does the Lord promise you that if you, like the Antiochian folks that show up there, start talking to other Christians, that he'll use you to start some mega church? No, <laughs> he doesn't. He could. The person that starts the next giant church in Northeast Ohio could be sitting in this room right now. Who knows? But that's not the promise. The promise is that he'll be faithful if we obey. And so we are called to faithfulness. We are called to go and to make much of his kingdom wherever we are, wherever you go to work tomorrow morning, wherever you sit at your desk, whatever coworkers you have around you, whatever classroom you're in, whatever classmates you have sitting next to you, whatever playground you take your kid to tomorrow that you see the other mom who's struggling with you know, four kids on her own, wherever it is that you go where you find yourself tomorrow morning, that's where you're called to be on mission. You are called to spread the gospel. You are called to be that city on a hill to make much of Jesus Christ and the good news. Will you take that challenge? Will you step out in faith? 
Or are we going to be like those who show up in Antioch and just talk amongst the holy huddle? Where we build committees upon committees that talk about what we're someday maybe going to do, but nothing ever actually happens. Because we don't go out as individuals. Until we learn as individual followers of Christ to take the call to discipleship seriously, we'll never be able to do it as a church, big church, not just still pres, but a big church. It starts with you. Will you take that call seriously? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you called your church in the book of Acts into being. Thank you for the way that we see through, through persecution, through the Holy Spirit, through direct appearances and all these ways that you call your church forward in the direction that it should go. Lord, we pray that you would show us the way forward. That you would share with us through your Holy Spirit, where we are to go, who we are to speak to, and that you would embolden us and empower us and give us the courage to act in obedient faith. Lord, our sinful nature makes this hard. We ask that you would silence the words of the enemy that says we can't, or that keeps us hesitant or comfortable. And we ask that you would pour your spirit out upon Stowe Presbyterian Church, that we would be emboldened and empowered and on fire to carry the gospel outside of these walls. That as we know people in our fellow cubicles or classrooms that don't know the Lord, that it would grieve our hearts like it grieves yours and that you would move us to action. Be with us, encourage us, provide us people to guide us along the way. We love you. And we praise you. And all his people said, Amen.